Amen. You guys can have a seat. Hey, we're going to dismiss the kids for their amazing time of teaching. I bet it may be two times as good as this. We love having you guys in here. Hey, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? You guys good? Hey, I'm excited to be here with you uh, this morning. Uh, speaking of kids, uh, really glad that the ladies got to go on their amazing ladies' women's retreat uh, this past weekend. Uh, for, for all the fathers in the room, we're glad they're back. Amen. Amen. Hey, guys, today we're kicking off a series through the book of Titus. We're going to take the next four weeks to walk through this book. Um, what's going to be super cool is that the next four weeks, we're actually going to hear from four different teachers. And so we're so blessed here to have that luxury. Uh, we're going to see something in the book of Titus that challenges churches to focus on sound doctrine and equipping healthy leaders, but showing grace through it all. And there's a lot of truth in this book that we have to glean from, and I'm really excited about um, being able to dive into it. Today, we're going to look at two things that Paul is going to uh, tell Titus uh, in this first part of chapter one that revolves around false doctrine and equipping and empowering leaders. And all of those things, there's this underlying theme of God's grace through it all. It's, it's, it's huge in there. As we uh, are called to meet these expectations of godly leadership, God's grace is wrapped in it uh, because his grace is what empowers it. And we're going to see that this morning. Have you guys ever uh, applied for a job and seen the scary uh, expectation list that looks almost unattainable? Uh, well, I remember my first job applying for in the church and seeing this list of things that uh, needed to be said of me and thinking, this is, I, I can't do any of this. Um, but in God's grace, uh, he put me around people who lifted me up uh, and empowered me and equipped me uh, and made me better uh, at those things to where I could strive to attain those things. But God wants us to strive for holiness and Christ-likeness. Uh, and that, my friend, is the lifelong journey. It's the challenge for our Christian walk that's wrapped in grace. And we're going to see just how big grace is this morning. Okay, so we're going to literally dive right in uh, to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9. Uh, but before we do that, I want to give you a little bit of background on the book of Titus, okay? So we're looking at the time of about A.D. 64. This letter is written somewhere between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. It's written by the Apostle Paul to his uh, partner in crime, his comrade uh, Titus, uh, his disciple uh, Titus, who is working uh, in the faith with Paul here. A little bit about Titus is that Titus is a Gentile. He was converted by Paul uh, earlier in Paul's ministry. Uh, and it's really similar to uh, this relationship of Paul and Timothy that we, we talk about a lot. So the same kind of like fatherly son kind of relationship between Paul and Titus, which is really cool. And Titus seems to be Paul's go-to guy for conflict. And I say this because we see Titus show up uh, in the game earlier on uh, in the church in Corinth, where Paul calls them in to the church in Corinth to say, Titus, I need your help. 
with this conflict that's happening. And it was conflict around legalism and uh, the church trying to get the Gentiles to conform to Jewish ways. And Paul brought in uh, Titus to help him with that. And we know that in conflict, there's two types of people that you want to be there. There's the guy who you're like, keep that person far away from this because they'll make it worse. Then there's the other guy who you say, bring him in because he'll, he'll make this better. And Titus was that guy for Paul. And we're going to see that as Paul calls him to the island of Crete uh, in this letter to Titus for another really difficult situation that he thought Titus was perfect for. Because Paul sent Titus because he empowered him uh, and he knew that Titus could do what needed to be done and Titus would live up to the example that the church needed there. Um, So I want to pray and then we're going to dive in and we have a lot to cover uh, this morning. So I'm going to try to not talk too fast, okay? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Uh, God, we're trusting your grace even in this moment as, uh, um, God, as I am your mouthpiece, Father, I pray that you would, uh, your words would speak through me, God, and that um, hearts in this room would be open and attentive to what you have to tell us today, because I think you have a powerful word that we need to learn from, Um, God, so I pray that you would would accomplish that this morning, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's open up to Titus chapter 1, and we'll dive right in. Uh, We'll go verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, Promise before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word to the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. Few things I want to point out in the first four verses. We see kind of this, this big why of this letter. And it's two things for the sake of the faith and for the knowledge of truth. I don't know about you, but I always, in Paul's letters, I can almost feel his emotion in the way he starts his letters. And this, this is no exception because I think he has emotion in the fact that truth is so important. It's important here and it's important for us. And I think that's why he describes God as a God who does not lie. Why would he say that? I think he's emphasizing God's character. He's emphasizing that God does not contradict himself. He does not deceive. He's righteous. He's true. His ways can be trusted and his track record proves it. It's so cool to see how God works because even in this moment, As we are preaching truth, God is working, and it's for the sake of the faith. It's pretty cool. Psalms 84, 11 through 12. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. He is trustworthy. And Paul is going to show us that Christ in his grace leads us to trust him more. Because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. And we're going to trust him more in the way that we live. Okay, verse 5. We're going to see two asks of Paul to Titus that we're actually going to dive into uh, this morning and kind of break down. All right, so verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete. So Paul telling Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. So that you might 
put what remained into order. Other translations say, straighten out and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So two things, help put the church back on the right path, straighten them out, and two, appoint leaders in the church, appoint elders in the churches there to help shepherd and continue to guide. Okay, so let's break down this path that the Church of Crete is on, and the only way we can do that is a little background of Crete. Okay, so the island of Crete, okay, it's a really strategic place to plant churches because there's harbors all along the island, okay? So there's diversity, there's trade. It was very purposeful for Paul to say, hey, let's plant churches here because think of the people that we could reach in this place. There's no better place to plant a church with people coming in from all these harbors for trade. Not only was it known for trade and diversity, it was known for sin and debauchery. This place was a party island. It was rough. It was known for mercenaries and violence. You know, any kind of perversion you can think of was happening on this place. And this is where he was sending Titus. And this is where they wanted to plant churches. Another fun fact was Crete is the birthplace of this guy. Zeus. Okay, the birthplace of the mythological god Zeus, the god of thunder and lightning and justice. Okay, they say that Zeus had the power to uh, change form into different things or take on the voice of, of anything. He was a god of deception. And I think that's why Paul is so adamant that our god, Yahweh, is different than your god, Zeus. He's true. He's trustworthy. Yahweh is the true god which you can imagine trying to convince people that your God is the true God uh, with no context uh, is really, really difficult. So Paul sings, Titus, go and straighten them out. Straighten out the false doctrine that is being preached here. Literally in the Greek, that phrase straighten out is a medical term for like a broken bone that, that needs to be put straight, needs to be fixed. So we don't really know what the false doctrine was that was being preached, but we can kind of see through the New Testament different types of false doctrine that was preached uh, in that time. And it could have been anything from uh, legalism of, of, of trying to put works to Christ's finished work, you know, things like that. Not totally sure, but we do know that there were two asks, to straighten it out, Titus, and appoint elders to help guide and shepherd these people. So he had quite the job. Uh, when we see what Paul is asking Titus, we see a picture of equipping and empowering here. Paul has walked with Titus for years, and Titus has been on mission after mission with Paul. Uh, it's, it's literally saying, Paul, walk the walk, um, letting, letting uh, people into your world, like this picture of discipleship. I love it here, where we see Paul take on Titus, and, and they walk together. I think that's really interesting. And here's a little food for thought. Sometimes it takes more than a coffee once a month for discipleship. And I think this is what Paul shows us in this life with, with Titus here. Sometimes you've got to let people into your world. You've got to walk with them. And I think God's really changed my perspective on that uh, over the years. Is that, that it, it really does look that way. That I need to let my walls down, let people into my life, and just be present I really do think it looks that way, and I think uh, we see that in the Paul and Titus relationship there. You know, reading through this passage, it made me think back to our Papua New Guinea trip that we took uh, last year where we 
I took 10 people from Northwest to go encourage about 90 missionaries in Papua New Guinea across uh, the ocean and the other side of the world. And uh, during that time there, we got to hear these tribal reports from each uh, missionary that was in a different tribe trying to plant churches in Papua New Guinea. And in these tribal reports, we uh, heard the same thing over and over about these missionaries trying to raise up elders uh, in these towns to plant churches. Uh, It was vital. It was so important. So we heard stories of churches that were flourishing, that elders had been raised up, and then we heard other stories of elders had been raised up and churches were dying, and that uh, elders were falling into sin and disqualifying themselves from leadership. And we, I mean, we saw the heartbreak of it, as you can imagine, pouring into people for so long. But in that, we, we, we heard stories of, of restoration, that as when people would fall off, uh, these missionaries would come right alongside them and walk with them to restoration. And I think that's super important. Second Corinthians 13, 9, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. And we see that a lot on Paul's journey. As he's planning churches, he's dealing with conflict with leaders uh, that he's poured into, but it's worth it. And that's one thing that I, I really, my eyes were open to in that time in Papua New Guinea, hearing from these leaders, because we need godly leaders and it's worth fighting for. And that's what I heard firsthand there. You know, when I first jumped into a full-time ministry in the church, uh, my first church that I served at, I had this group of people that I got to pour into day in and day out for almost five years there. Uh, And God, he used me in their life until he was done using me in their life and called us here to Northwest Arkansas. And when that time happened, it was hard. I loved these people. I'd walk daily with them. And God was calling us elsewhere. And I was just thinking about this picture of Paul leaving Titus and Crete. There's a principle here that I think is really important. The people that you disciple, there's going to come a time where you're going to have to let them go. You're going to have to let them go, let them spread their wings and do what God has called them to do. You pour into, you equip, you empower, and you let them go and you watch God do something awesome. And that's what happened. I love thinking back to uh, God's work there because when we transitioned out nothing suffered it only got better God worked in that and it's so encouraging for us this morning as we disciple people and get to see them raised up and God do a great work in them alright back to that first task given to Titus Paul asked him to correct the false doctrine that is infiltrating the church in Crete And this morning, I want to define what false doctrine is. I don't want that to be confusing for us. So we're going to break it down, okay? Doctrine, a set of ideas or beliefs that are taught or believed to be true. Biblical doctrine, teaching that align with the revealed word of God, the Bible. False doctrine, any idea that adds to, takes away from, contradicts, or nullifies the doctrine given in God's word. Okay, so sound doctrine originates with God. False doctrine originates with someone or something created by God. Listen to this quote describing false teachers of our day today. Okay, these are guys, you may not even recognize their names, but these are guys that are are leading massive movements today. Massive movements in America today. And they're spreading false doctrine. Listen to this. 
T.D. Jakes says that God eternally exists in three manifestations, not three persons. Greg Boyd says God knows some aspects of the future, but other future events are outside of his knowledge. Creflo Dollar says because we are created in the image of God, we are little gods. Mormonism says God revealed new scripture to Joseph Smith that supersedes the Bible. Roman Catholicism says we are justified by faith, but not by faith alone. This world is a murky madness of true and false. For every doctrine we know to be true, there seems to be a hundred pretenders. A hundred pretenders. It is not always easy to see. Think back to the greatest deception of all time. Back in the Garden of Eden. Satan took what was good and he perverted it. For his gain, imperfection was over because of that. Genesis 3.1, Satan was the most cunning of them all. John 10.10, he's a thief. He comes to steal. He comes to destroy. I often wonder about these guys who are, who are teaching this, this false doctrine today. And I wonder, have they lost all sense of truth? Have they, the voice that they hear they really think it's the voice of God and it's not. Listen to Matthew 7, verses 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The enemy is cunning. God, protect us from that. We need to know God. We need to know our Bible. We need to know our doctrine. We need to know the truth of God's word. Acts 17, 11, they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. Every day. Know what is true. Know what is false. What's not lining up with scripture? It's everywhere, guys. It's everywhere. And it will continue to be. We aren't talking about styles or denominations. We're talking about biblical truth that's been twisted. It opposes fundamental truth. Check out this graph I put together. True doctrine in summary, true doctrine, the content, originates with God. He's the origin. And is grounded in the Bible, which is the authority, and agrees with the whole of Scripture. It's consistent. Because such doctrine is sound, it has quality, it's healthy, it benefits us, it's profitable, there's value for us, and we are responsible for holding it. That's our responsibility. Look at false doctrine. False doctrine is the content. It originates with man, that's the origin, it is grounded in the Bible, that's the authority. Or it's not grounded in the Bible, that's the authority. It contradicts portions of Scripture, so there's no consistency. Because such doctrine is unsound, there's no quality. It's unhealthy, it doesn't benefit us. It's unprofitable, there's no value for us. We are responsible for rejecting it. That's our responsibility. Here are some really common false doctrines that are floating around today. There's no hell. God would never send people to hell. He's a God of love. There's no such thing. There's no hell. They totally deny it. Universalism. Okay, so there's not just one path to God. There's many paths. 
And that's what all these other people are doing. We're all going to the same thing. We're just taking a little different path. Doctrines that deny the deity of Christ, that say he wasn't sinless or that wasn't a virgin birth or uh, there, there's not the Trinity, there's no Holy Spirit, Father, Son. What's really big right now is this apostasy movement where there's people saying that I'm a prophet and I have a new word for you that goes beyond scripture. It's a new word that God wants you to hear. Stop putting God in the box. It's huge right now. Works, religious works added to the work that Christ has already done. We see this all through scripture. It's still happening today. Adding to his finished work. And probably the most famous of them all that you'll recognize is the prosperity gospel. Prosperity theology. It's a me-centered theology. Uh, It's all about you. God is here for you. If you believe enough, He'll grant you whatever you need, whatever you want. Just believe, just believe. It's sneaky about these doctrines. What's sneaky about it is that these teachers aren't always teaching, you know, not everything they say is wrong, but that's where it's these little tidbits of poison that intertwine and sowed into their theology that lead to past just like the garden and just like the church in Crete. A lot of times, it's really what is missing That's the problem. Redemption from sin, which Christ died on our behalf, is nowhere in the prosperity theology. It's not in that gospel. It's missing. God is not here just to give us our best life now. It's not in the Bible. You know, so Joel Osteen, you should recognize that name, because Joel has been labeled as the most influential evangelical pastor of our day. And I do evangelical in quotes there, of our day. You know, 50,000 people come to his church every weekend to hear him speak in Houston. Joel would say, embrace yourself. Think positive. If God had a refrigerator, your face would be on it. God says, deny yourself. Pick up your cross daily. Stop thinking of the things here and start thinking about the things above. It's totally different. It's a different gospel. False doctrines are always spinoffs of confusing verses. And that's where it gets tricky, and the enemy loves to deceive. You cannot build an entire doctrine of faith off of one verse. It's impossible. We believe that God is consistent through all of Scripture. So when we hit confusing verses, we don't stop there. We look at all of Scripture, because God is true. He's consistent. We believe it. His word is true, and that's what Paul is fighting for here in the church in Crete. And that's why he's sending Titus here. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Such devotion will protect us and ensure that we are on the path Jesus set for us. It comes back to this idea of knowing your theology. Stop flying solo. What I mean by that is you are way more likely to veer off if you're by yourself. Are you in community? Are you part of a church? It's the way God's designed it. Stop flying solo. Walk with people. Community revolves around truth uh, of God's word is vital for your growth. It's vital. Know what is true, love what is true, teach what is true. 
We have to know what is true. Okay, and to this last section of this passage, in verses six through nine, Paul is gonna show us what godly leadership looks like and what it doesn't look like. Specifically, in the roles of elders in the church. And so we can take this word elders and we can interchange it with pastor or shepherd or overseer, okay? It's all the same thing there. Elders in the church. Here at Northwest, we're governed by a board of elders. Shepherds that steer the ship. They protect us. They keep us on mission. They keep us walking towards the gospel. And we have an amazing group of guys that put so much time and devotion into this body and prayer for us. And Paul lays out in the next three verses here the character of godly leaders. So we have the role of a pastor or an elder reserved for men, but we're gonna see in here uh, these characteristics that are called for all godly leaders. Look at this verse in Colossians 3, uh, 7 through 10. It's this idea of being above reproach that we're gonna see called to elders. It's also called to all Christians. Look at this verse five in chapter three of Colossians. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these things, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still a part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malice, behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other. For you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. So just like the role of the elder, we see the idea of being above reproach is a call for all of us this morning for integrity. So let's take a look, though, at the expectations for your pastors, for your elders uh, here at Northwest and beyond in the church. Let's start in verse 6, and we'll kind of break it down as we go. Verse 6, one who is blameless. Other translations say above reproach. You've heard that phrase a lot. One who is blameless, the the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of wildness or rebellion. Let's look at this first part because it is interpreted in many, many different ways. Okay, but we're going to take it and kind of break it down. So this first part of one who is blameless and the husband of one wife. So this could be talking about polygamy. could be talking about divorce. could be talking about singleness. There's so many scenarios here that come into play, so many factors. And I think what Paul is getting at here is to be an elder, you have to be faithful to one woman and that woman is your wife, or your future wife. I personally don't believe that past divorce or singleness keep you from leadership in the church. And there's a lot of different views on that. But I believe God desires us to exercise grace. I mean, those situations, there's so much that comes into play there. And we have to use Christian conscience in a lot of that, and a lot of prayer, because there's so much that comes into play. The second part about having faithful children Uh, who are not accused of wildness and rebellion. Parents, don't panic, okay? Because what's funny about this section is it literally is talking about small children under your roof, Uh, which is pretty funny because I think right now uh, rebellion and wildness is exactly how you would label our one-year-old right now, okay? 
So I don't want to get distracted here because I don't think that's really what it's talking about. I think, again, I think it's talking about your faithfulness to your family. Your faithfulness to your family flowing from your faithfulness to your wife. You know, it, it all comes together. There's a lot of debate around this section, though, of Scripture. Is it talking about your kids have to be Christians or, you know, or, or what is it saying? But we can look at Scripture and know that as parents, you're not responsible for uh, the salvation of your kids. You can't control that. All you can do is raise them up in the way of, of the Lord. So, so much comes into play there. And we have to look at all of Scripture. I think it's really interesting, though, the order that Paul goes in here. And I don't think it's far-fetched to assume that if you're not a good husband and not a good father, there's no way you're going to reach these expectations that we're about to look at. And I think it's vice versa, that if you are uh, reaching these things, these expectations of an elder, I bet you're a good dad. I bet you're an awesome husband, because these things are all part of it. It's all part of it, all right? So let's look at this list of character traits that should and shouldn't be in your life as an elder in the church. For an overseer, as God's administrator, must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not addicted to wine, not a bully, not greedy for money, but instead, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught, so that he will be able to both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. So we see Paul lay it out super specifically. Elders shouldn't be overbearing or short-tempered. They don't go off and get drunk. They're kind to people. They don't boss people around. They aren't in love with money or try to gain profit for themselves. They love giving back. They hate the things God hates, and they never stray away from God's word. They never stray from his truth. It's the lifeblood. And in God's grace and power, your pastors can look like that because of God's grace. Let me show you what Paul is not saying here in this section. When he calls uh, this call to blamelessness, or uh, some translations say uh, no accusation, doesn't mean he shouldn't have any enemies. I mean, look at Paul's life, okay? He had enemies, and he wasn't above reproach to his opponents. I mean, look at Jesus. Being blameless or above reproach has to mean something other than everyone likes this guy. He has no enemies, and there's no accusations against him. That is unattainable, and I don't think that's biblically consistent. What I think Paul is saying is this, this idea of being blameless or above reproach is a heading over all these other things. So to be above reproach means this. A man above reproach is a man who is faithful to his wife, is sober-minded, self-controlled, a good manager of his home, gentle, respectable, and in the end can admit he is wrong. How is everybody feeling? You feel a little inadequate, underqualified? <laughs> I understand. I feel that too. But this is where the letter gets good. This is where we recognize God's grace for us. God's grace in our lives to strive for godliness. He can redeem and enable. 
And this is good news for all of us today. Especially you men that are called to eldership. This is good news. Philippians 2.13, for God is working in you, giving you the desire, the power to do what pleases him. 2 Corinthians 12.9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in my weakness, in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me, his grace at work in us. Church, this is hope. This is hope. Stop getting overwhelmed by what you can't accomplish and start looking towards the things that God has accomplished and can accomplish in your life. I think Richard Baxter, the author, says it really well. Take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine. Lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues and be the greatest hinderers of the success of your own labors. Simply put, godly leaders have to walk the talk. You cannot contradict it. What is your reputation? People can disagree with you, but still respect you, and you not be known as a hypocrite or a liar. It's possible. 1 Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Godly leaders want to take people, move people towards godliness, towards worship, towards honoring Jesus, towards loving people. They are servants. They're humble. They want to get under people and lift them up. They don't want to go over people and oppress them or manipulate them. That's godly leadership. You want to know how you and I can live lives that are above reproach, be satisfied in Christ. Be satisfied in Christ. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Find your every need satisfied in him. Find your identity in his work and not your own. Get rid of your ego and discontentment. Get rid of it. Be willing to get down in the dirt and serve people. Be patient. Be willing to wait. Fight for people. That is godly leadership that flows from satisfaction in a holy God. We are desperate for leaders like this. We're desperate for leaders like this in the church. If you strive for these things, this list that Paul sets before us, you strive for it on your own, you may attain it for a little while, and it'll surely lead to pride. Or you'll try to do it, and you'll fail, and you'll be stuck in guilt and shame, because you can't attain it. Jesus is our hope. He's our hope. Do not be overwhelmed. He is our hope. Understand your need this morning. Ask, and God will supply it. There's four things I want to walk away with today from this section of scripture. I want to make sure we understand. One is false doctrine is a poison that must be identified 
and rejected. We have to know our Bible, church. We have to know our God. How are you growing in your knowledge of the word? Don't be naive. Know what's happening around you. Know what other people are saying, what they're teaching. Don't be naive because it's happening everywhere. Are you in community? Are you, are you striving for godliness with other believers? Are you in community? You know, one thing our community group uses is this website called Right Now Media that is a resource that has hundreds of Bible studies on it. Hundreds. Between that and the Bible app, guys, we are resourced more than any other time uh, in the ages. We have no excuse. If you need help with those resources, come talk to me because I'd love to show you those. How are you growing your knowledge of the word too? Gospel truth is vital for our growth and godliness. Who is your Titus? Who are you discipling? Who are you walking with? Who are you helping equip and empower to take to the Crete of today? Who are you pouring your life into? Can I be honest here? We are so blessed here at Northwest. We may be a small body of believers, but we are multi-generational. And this idea of older people taking on younger people, I don't think we do it very well. I don't think we do it very well. And I think we're missing out. Older folks in the room, I want to talk to you from my perspective from a younger generation. When was the last time you invited a younger family into your life? When was the last time you invited a younger family to dinner, to lunch, to just let them in to see? When was the last time? We're desperate for it. We're desperate for it. You may think that you have nothing to offer, but you have so much to offer. And we're desperate for it. You know, I really hesitated uh, sharing this, but I, I want to make a point. So me and Adrian have been here at Northwest for five and a half years. And I can count on my hand the, the times that an older couple in a different season than us has invited us into their life to a meal on my hand in the past five and a half years, guys. And I'm not telling you that to feel bad for us or whatever. I'm, I'm telling you that to make a point. We're missing it. I think we're missing something huge here that God wants us to partake in. This idea of older people taking on younger people, inviting them in, discipleship, Godly growth and encouragement. I think we're missing something massive. And we're blessed to have that here. Hear me. What will it take for us to have lives that say, hey, come on in. I'm not perfect. I don't have all the answers. But let me tell you where I've been. Let me tell you how God has worked in my life. You know, I know that feeling of not really knowing well, where do I start or I feel inadequate. What do I have to give? And I think God's telling us we have a lot to give. So here's the step for you guys, for all of us, older, younger. Find a family you want to pour into and jump in a community group with them. Just for a season. Shake it up. Okay? It may get messy. It's so worth it, though. Jump in a group with them. That's a great step. 
think we're missing something there that God wants to work in our church. Number three, he has designed pastors and elders to come alongside the church to help and guide us. Women, who in your life, what men are you lifting up and encouraging to strive for things like is listed in this list, to strive for eldership? Who are you encouraging? Wives, are you encouraging your husbands to live lives that look like this? Let me tell you something that's really true. What you tell your husband is what they can do. Whatever Adrian encourages me, tells me I can do, I can do it. She tells me I can run a marathon, I can run a marathon. She tells me I can fly, I can fly. I'm telling you, when your wife believes in you, it's power. Wives, are you encouraging your husbands? Families, are you raising up your sons to be able to embody these traits? How are you empowering them? And this one's really important. Are you praying for your elders that you have? Whew. I'm telling you guys, the role of being an elder is difficult and hard. It's a hard road. You know, in James 3, it talks about these elders are going to be held to a higher standard for the decisions that they're making. They're going to be held to it. We're talking long hours devoted to leading this church. Are you praying for them? You know, I served on the elder board for about four years, and I used to have hair. I'm just going to leave it at that. Are you praying for your elders? So important. And men in the room, is God preparing you or shaping you to one day be an elder in the church? Are you open to that? Are you allowing God to work that in your heart? Have you asked that question? And lastly, number four, I'm going to invite the band to go ahead and make their way up. Number four, God's grace enables and motivates us to live up to the standards of godly leadership. He has made a way. He's made a way. Without grace, we fall and we fail. But with his grace, we are empowered. His grace is sufficient. Even for you, even for me, it's sufficient. He can enable us to be godly leaders. Because of what he has done for me, it makes me want to be more like him. Because of the cross, because of what he's forgiven me, for it makes me want to strive for those things. God, I want to be like you because of what you've done for me. Makes me want to chase those things because of him, because of the cross. I'm not overwhelmed. I will not be overwhelmed because God, you've made a way. He's made a way for you this morning. I'm going to close with this psalm and I want us to be encouraged. Psalm 103, 8 through 12. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve for his unfailing love towards us to those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. 
He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. This is truth. This is hope. And that is what has the power to change us. That is what has the power to enable us to live this way. We need Him. We are desperate for Him. Let's pray together. Jesus, we cry out our dependence. God, we praise You for Your Word. God, that You lay it out for us of how we should live, what it should look like. And your grace, it covers it. It's sufficient. God, I pray for every heart in this room that feels inadequate or has shame or guilt. God, we need you. God, show us, reveal to our hearts this morning that the cross was enough to pay for all of that. Your grace is enough. God, today, we choose to strive for godliness. God, we recognize the church needs godly leaders. This world needs godly leaders. God, you're going to do that work in us. God, we love you. God, we cry out our dependence to you. In Christ's name, amen. Just stand, let's sing together.